How are y'all doing? Good. Well, my name's Kristen, if I haven't had the chance to meet you before. Um, my husband Joel and I are on the leadership team here, and I have the honor of sharing God's word with you this morning. So before we get started, would you just pray with me? God, thank you for time together as a church family to worship, to open your word, to just be in your presence and encourage one another. God, I humble myself this morning before you and before my church family and just ask um, that you would speak to each one of us right where we need to hear from you today. Thank you for your presence and your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been in a series over the last several weeks. We have been looking at 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 7, and just going verse by verse and unpacking that and looking at what this description of love means for us and how it informs the way that we live in community with one another and also in relationship with God. And we're going to continue in that today. We're going to wrap this series up this morning. Uh, we've titled this last message, Love Never Gives Up. And as I've been preparing for this over the last few weeks, my thoughts have kept going to my grandparents, my mom's parents. I have a picture of them right here. This is my grandma and grandpa coffee. And um, by all worldly, probably, standards of success, people maybe wouldn't call my grandparents a great success. They lived a simple life. They didn't have a lot of education. They didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have a lot of influence. But what they did have was a lot of love that never gave up. And I'm so thankful that I have gotten to grow up in the legacy of their love. My grandfather was a prison guard. They lived in Canyon City, and he worked at the Canyon City Prison. And he was doing prison ministry before that was probably really a thing that people knew to do. <laughs> um, that's not true. People have been doing prison ministry since biblical times. But you know what I mean. He would bring home his prisoners when they got released. He would bring them home to his house with his family and give them a hot meal. And he would hire them to do odd jobs to get them back on their feet. My mom actually has a desk that my grandpa hired an ex-prisoner to build for her. She took that desk with her to college, and now it's in my house, and I have that desk. And my grandma, she raised six kids. My mom was the youngest of the six, and they faced so much hardship. My um, aunt suffered from polio as a young girl. I think she was 10 years old, and she survived but obviously had lifelong health implications because of it. I have another uncle who was born with a thyroid condition that if he were born today, would actually be able to be treated. There's interventions available to us that were not available when my uncle was born. So he grew up with severe uh, mental disabilities and my grandparents just loved them so well with love that never gave up. And I'm the beneficiary of that. So I just wanted to open recognizing the small life that by most people's standards probably doesn't seem extraordinary, but their love was extraordinary. And we know, Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 7, that the gifts that we have, those don't really matter without love. My, parent, my grandparents maybe weren't the most gifted spiritually, but they loved so well. Paul also says that it doesn't matter how good we are, even if we give everything we have to the poor and if we are martyred for our faith, if we do it without love, it means nothing. So before we dive into today's message, I want to zoom out and I want us to remember where we've been over these last several weeks. So we're going to read verses 1 through 7 out of 1 Corinthians 13. 
If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Here's where we're going to focus in today. Verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. We're going to take those four verbs that Paul wraps up this description of what love is like, and we're going to look at them each through three different lenses. We're going to ask, how does Jesus lead the way? We're going to ask, how does this change the way that I engage with God? And then we're going to ask, how does this change the way that I love other people? So let's look at the first phrase that Paul uses. He says, love bears all things. Now, the Greek word for bears is the word stego, and it actually means to cover or conceal or protect by covering to keep off something which threatens from without. One of the commentaries I read said that this, this word was sometimes actually used to describe a roof because the function of a roof is to cover what is within and to bear up against the weight of what is placed on top of it. It made me think of a couple of years ago, it was spring break, and Joel, my husband, and my oldest son, Bryson, they were on a mission trip to the Dominican Republic, and this spring storm came in. So I was home with our other three kids, and it was such a bad storm that the team couldn't get home. So I wake up, and I've got the kids in the house, and I'm looking in our backyard, out our back window, we have a trampoline in our backyard, and the snow was so heavy and wet, and it had just accumulated on our trampoline, and I could see the tramp just, like, sinking under the weight of the snow. And I was like, dang it, like, Joel's chilling in the tropics, and I've got to shovel this snow. I was so mad, so I, like, got on my snow pants and got the shovel and shoveled the driveway and then went and shoveled the, the snow off of the trampoline. But as I was thinking about what this word means, I was thinking about that experience because, you know what, I knew how heavy the snow was. I could see it in the backyard. But inside of my house, me and my other three kids, we were warm. We were safe. We weren't in the storm that was happening outside. And I wasn't thinking about the weight of that snow on my roof because my roof was doing its job. It was bearing up under the weight of what was being placed upon it. So that's what this word means. When we say love bears all things, keep that picture in your mind. We see that we're called to this kind of love relationally in 1 Peter 4, 8. It says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Same word. In Psalm 85, 2, we see that this love comes to us vertically from God towards us. It says, you forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. So let's ask our first question. How does Jesus lead the way in this area. I am reading the, the Gospel of Luke right now. In my personal Bible reading, I like to always be reading the Gospels. That's not all I read, but I'm always in the Gospels somewhere. 
And um, I've been in the Gospel of Luke lately, and it's so interesting to me to see just the real humanity of the disciples. There's so much that I read about that I'm like, oh, I recognize that because I know that it's in me. The disciples were such a funny group of people. They were just like us. There are lots of accounts in scripture of the disciples arguing with each other over who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. There are instances where the disciples get mad because other people were doing ministry that weren't part of their little group. And they say to Jesus, like, Jesus, these guys are, they are like doing ministry in your name. Should we tell them to stop? And Jesus is like, guys, no, it's okay. An account in Luke where James and John actually get really mad because they were going to go into a Samaritan village and like prepare for Jesus's arrival. But the Samaritans don't want anything to do with Jesus. And James and John get ticked off. And they're like, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven on them? And Jesus is like, no. Like, he was so patient with the disciples. They misunderstood. And he had to repeat himself. And they doubted over and over and over again. And yet, Jesus patiently bore the weakness, the faithful, faithlessness, and the brokenness of the disciples in relationship with him. He shows us how to do that. And then, of course, Jesus also has led the way in this on the cross. On the cross, through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus literally covers our sin. He bears up in love for us, right? Like, definitely leads the way in that. So how does this change the way that I engage with God, seeing the way Jesus leads in this changes the way that I engage with God. You know, in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, the high priest, one day out of the year, could go into the inner sanctuary of the temple, the Holy of Holies. This one day of of the year, he would go in and he would make atonement for his sins and the sins of the people. And, And that was it. He was the only one allowed to go in there and only that one day out of the year. But A very interesting thing happens on the cross. When Jesus died, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies was ripped from top to bottom, signifying that Jesus has made the old covenant obsolete. He's showing us a new way. So we engage with God because now we can approach God with confidence because we know that that Jesus made a way for us. He brought us into the relationship he has with his Father, and now we get to be a part of it. This isn't in your notes, but I want to read it to you because it just perfectly captures what I'm talking about. This is Hebrews 10. We're going to read verse 12, and then we're going to jump down to verse 19. It says, But our high priest, Jesus, offered himself to God as our sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down at the place of highest honor at God's right hand. And then jump down a few verses to 19, and it says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. We can now approach God with confidence. I think the other thing that we can engage engage with God differently because of this understanding of what it means for love to bear all things is just like Jesus bore patiently with his disciples, we as people just are faced with difficulties, day-to-day frustrations and disappointments. And it's easy, I think, to let our love kind of grow cold. 
sometimes I think it's even easier for us to cling to God in the really difficult circumstances because we know how much we need him. But during the daily frustrations, it's easy to allow our hearts to just kind of become cold towards God. But Jesus shows us that we can stay engaged with God even in the midst of the disappointments, the frustrations, and the trouble that we face. All right, the third lens that we want to look through. How does this change the way that I love other people? There's two important things for us to recognize here. And the first one is just like Jesus was patient with his disciples, we can bear up through the frustrations and the brokenness and the offenses of other people. We can allow the disappointments that happen, the hurts that happen relationally, we can allow those to happen without removing our love from that person or from that relationship. I think maybe even more difficult for us to do is we can cover the offenses and the sin of other people. Now, I'm not talking about sweeping sin under the rug or not pointing it out when it needs to be pointed out. There's absolutely relationships that we're in with other people where we have both the position and the permission from that other person to hold them accountable and to, to let them know like, hey, I, I think you're a little off track here. I'm not talking about that. But once the sin has been dealt with where it needs to be dealt with, we cover it over and we move on. It's so easy for us to tell a friend, hey, did you hear about so-and-so's marriage? Did you hear what that guy got up to last weekend? And there's something in us that almost feeds off of that gossip and kind of wants to spread the word of bad news about other people or about other people's weakness or sin or failing. We've got to stop that. This tells us love doesn't do that. Love covers a multitude of sins. Let's look at the second phrase that Paul uses. Paul says, love believes all things. Now, the Greek word for believes, it doesn't mean like wishful thinking. Oftentimes, we say things like, oh, I wish the Broncos, or I hope the Broncos win today, or I hope I win the lottery, right? You know that I'm wishing for those things. Is it likely that the Broncos are going to win or that I'm going to win the lottery? Not this year, <laughs> probably, right? So that's wishful thinking. That's not what this word means. This word actually means having a confident hope, a full, confident joy of what is to come. Um, if, you, if you look in uh, Proverbs 14, 15, it says, The gullible believe anything they're told. The prudent sift and weigh every word. Right? So we're not just going to believe like, everything we hear. That's not what we're being called to do, but we're being called to believe the best about people and the best about God. How, how does Jesus lead the way? How does he show us what this looks like? I think one of the most beautiful examples of this happens on the cross. Jesus, in all of his humanity, is hanging on the cross at the darkest moment when to the outside world, from a human perspective, it looks like all hope is lost. And here's what Jesus says in Luke 23, 46. Jesus says, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. In his last moment, Jesus expresses belief that God is good and that God was going to accomplish 
his purpose. Even though from our human perspective, it didn't look like that. Jesus leads the way. So how does this change the way that I engage with God? Well, it changes the way that I engage with God because Jesus has shown us that we can trust him even in the very worst situations, even in the worst circumstances. We can believe that God's promises are true and that he's going to do exactly what he's promised to do. One of my favorite verses to hold on to when I'm in a season where I look around and I'm like, man, it's hard to believe that God's moving right now. It's hard to believe that God is working in this particular area. Look at 2 Corinthians 1.20 with me. It says, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. What good news that all of God's promises are yes in Jesus. So when we're in those seasons where it's hard to believe the best, where it's hard to see how God is going to be faithful to his promise, we can look at Jesus. We can remember that all of God's promises are yes in Jesus. Okay, how does this change the way that I love others? Well, I'm going to believe the best of other people. When we, when we put this into practice relationally, it means that we're going to give people the benefit of the doubt. We're going to believe the best of them until there's overwhelming evidence to the contrary. I know that it can be really easy for me to tell myself a story about the intentions of somebody else that aren't even true. This will happen with my husband. He'll make an offhand comment, and in my head, I start saying, oh, well, he, he doesn't appreciate me. He doesn't see any value in what I do. And all of a sudden, I've, I've spun this whole story about what he thinks, and my feelings are hurt, and I start relationally kind of closing in when he had no idea that that's the story I just told myself. So this relational break happens entirely because what I have said to myself in my own head. We've got to stop doing that. We need to ascribe the best intentions to other people in any given situation. We can love others by asking, how can I believe the best of them right now? What would that look like? And then choose to go with that interpretation of things until there's overwhelming evidence to the contrary. And then, of course, we have to deal with that as it comes. But even at that point, we don't rejoice in it. We're not glad when we get proved, proved right, I guess, in our initial assumptions. All right. The third phrase that Paul uses, love hopes all things. I want to look at Romans 8, 24 and 25. I think it helps us get, a, get our heads around this verse a little bit, around this word and what it really means. It says, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. We're waiting eagerly with conviction about what's to come. Hebrews 11:1 gives us a little bit more insight into this word hope. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So how does Jesus lead the way in this? I came across this great exchange between Peter and Jesus at the Last Supper, and I really see Jesus showing us what this kind of hope looks like in this exchange. In Luke twenty-two thirty-one, Jesus says to Peter, he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, 
But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Now, here's why this is really interesting, because Peter's response to this is to say, whoa, hold on a minute. I, like, I'm gonna, I'll go to prison with you. Like, I'm here. I'm with you. And Jesus tells him, actually, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. So when we see Jesus telling him, I've prayed for you that your faith won't fail, Jesus knows that Peter is going to deny him. In some sense, his faith does fail. But what Jesus is saying, he is expressing this conviction that Peter will be restored and that when he's restored, he's going to strengthen his brothers and Jesus is going to use him as a powerful leader in the church to spread the gospel. This is a beautiful example of believing the best of other people. How does this change the way that I engage with God? I think it's so easy to become discouraged when we just don't see what God is doing behind the scenes and for our hearts to begin to lose hope. We can hope in God regardless of our circumstances because Jesus has showed us how to do it. I think sometimes we have to kind of preach to ourselves when we find ourselves in that place where we're just, we're grasping for hope and it just feels out of reach. Like the psalmist in Psalm 62, 5, we need to say, yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from him. We can't forget where our hope comes from and that it's secure. It can't be taken away. And related to that, not only can we remain hopeful in the midst of difficult circumstances, but we can be hopeful that God is working everything together for our good and for his glory, even in the middle of all that, even when it doesn't look like he's there or present. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things God works together for the works for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We got to hang on to that. That's how we engage with God. We hold on to hope. How does this change the way that I love other people? I know what it's like to pray for somebody and pray that God would move in their life and not see it happen. I know how discouraging it can become to be in a season of longing to see God move and and feeling like it's just not going to happen. But because of this, because hope is always, love always hopes, because of this, nobody is a lost cause. We never write anybody off. Nobody is beyond the scope of God's mercy and his grace. The gospel is all about reconciliation, and that is what God is in the business of doing. So even even when it's hard, we hold on to hope. We never consider somebody a lost cause. And then the other really practical thing that love that always hopes calls us to is believing and hoping for the best outcome for other people. Now, I'm not talking about your children or your friends or the people that you love and who it's easy to love. I'm talking about hoping for the very best for people who hurt you who don't like you, who have betrayed you or disappointed you. It's hard to hope for the best in those, in those relationships. Much to my own shame, as I was studying for this particular point, I was going down a rabbit trail looking at what the Greek word for hope meant. And I, I got a little off track and my mind started to wander. 
And I started to replay a conversation that I had with a friend a couple of months ago. And this friend was challenging some of the parenting decisions that Joel and I have made. And I was just going back through the conversation. I was getting mad and just thinking, like feeling defensive and being like, oh, I wish I would have said this, or I wish I would have made this point. And without much intention, this thought popped into my head of, I hope her kids rebel. <laughs> I was studying this word, and my hope was not for her best outcome or the best outcome for her kids. And immediately, God brought conviction and I, I prayed for my friend and for her children, but isn't that how we are? Like, in our broken human selves, we don't hope for the best for other people. We don't pray God's best outcome for other people, but practically, that's what love does. That's what Paul says. Love always hopes. So we can love others by catching ourselves when we get into that cycle and turning it around and saying, God, forgive me. Help me love them. Help me always hope for them. All right, the fourth and final uh, phrase that Paul uses to describe what love is like, he says, love endures all things. This word, endures, in the Greek, it actually means to remain under. It was a military term used to describe an army that was being told to hold a vital position at all cost. So there's something kind of long-suffering about this term and also uh, the idea of really holding steady under some severe persecution or difficulty from the outside. How does Jesus lead the way in this? I know when I read the account of Jesus's uh, trial and his crucifixion, so often I read that through the lens of his deity, knowing that Jesus, that's my Lord and King who did that. And that's absolutely true. But what's also true is that Jesus fully entered into our broken world as a human, with human limitations, with human emotions. He did it perfectly in sin, but everything that Jesus suffered the humiliation, the mocking, the turmoil, the abuse. He suffered that in his humanity, and he knew he was going to do it. He intended to do it. Listen to um, John 13, 1. It says, it was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them with enduring love, knowing what he was about to face. He loved them to the end. And not only that, but Jesus on the cross, after being beaten and mocked and humiliated, all that came before during his trial, then he is taken and nailed to the cross, and there's crowds around him. The, the Romans guards are there, the soldiers are there, the crowds are there, and they're mocking him, and they're saying, like, save yourself if you're, if you're a prophet. Save yourself. And what does Jesus respond with? He says in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That is enduring love. How does that change the way that I engage with God. You know, when I think about that, those three days, that Friday to Sunday when Jesus was crucified to when he was resurrected, I think about Saturday. 
think about what the disciples must have felt on Saturday. They had put all of their hope in Jesus. They thought this is the Messiah, this is the king, this is the one we've been waiting for. But their idea, so many people's idea of what Jesus had come to do was not in fact what Jesus had come to do. The kingdom of God that Jesus brought was not the physical kingdom where he was taking political control that people were waiting for and expecting. So that Saturday, Jesus is in the tomb. We know that the disciples are hiding in a room locked away because they're terrified. Can you imagine the disappointment and the fear and the turmoil that they were in in that moment? But here's what we know on this side of the cross that the disciples didn't yet know. Sunday was coming. Sunday was just around the corner. Saturday, everything looked hopeless and bleak. But Sunday was coming. We know that today. We know what happened on Sunday. So we can endure in any circumstance without losing hope and without doubting God because we know that Jesus has conquered all and that nothing can separate us from him. Listen to Romans 8, 38, and 39. It says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We engage with God by enduring Whatever situation we find ourselves in, we hold on tight to his love. And we can do it because he already did it for us. You know, a few months ago, Brian Sump, one of the pastors at Novation, he was teaching and he shared about him and Jill, um, his wife, walking through pregnancy loss and just how difficult that was. And Jill is a good friend of mine. And so right after they had lost their, their baby, we were at church and Jill was sitting right here in the front row and I was sitting right over here with my family and I knew that Jill's heart was broken. I knew that Jill was in the middle of that enduring and I looked over during worship and Jill with tears coming down her face was worshiping God and I grabbed my phone and I sent her a text message and just thank you so much for your faithful endurance. Your faith builds my faith. When we do this, when we engage with God and we hold on, in the midst of really difficult circumstances, it's not just our faith that's increased, it's the faith of our whole community. Watching God sustain us in that builds up everybody's faith. How does this change the way that I love other people? Knowing that we're called to love people in a way that endures all things, it calls us to do two things. It calls us to remain in difficult circumstances for the sake of somebody else, And it also calls us to suffer with patient endurance in those situations. Now, I'm not talking about situations of abuse. There are absolutely times and seasons when the the loving thing to do is to love from a distance. But outside of those situations of like extreme abuse happening, we've got to learn to stay, to dig our heels in and stay because it's, it's not what comes naturally to us. When we get offended or our feelings hurt or have some kind of a relational conflict, what do we do? We leave churches, we leave friendships, we cut off ties with our family, and that is in opposition to what Paul is talking about here. That's not what love does. Love holds the vital position at all costs for the sake of another. That's what enduring love looks like. 
I recently read um, The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom for the first time. I'm not sure how I got to be 39 years old without ever having read it before, but it's such a fantastic account of um, a family who lived in Holland during World War II. Corey and her sister Betsy and the rest of their family, they were really important, um, an important part of the underground that helped to hide and protect Jewish families and get them to safe houses. And they were eventually caught and taken to prison. And Betsy, uh, Corey and her sister Betsy ended up in a German concentration camp. And I want to read you the account that Corey shares of what Friday mornings in this camp looked like and the way that the love of Jesus enabled her to endure. Fridays, the recurrent humiliation of medical inspection, the hospital corridor in which we waited was unheated and a fall chill had settled into the walls. Still, we were forbidden even to wrap ourselves in our own arms, but had to maintain our erect, hands at sides position as we filed slowly past the grinning guards. How there could have been any pleasure in the sight of these stick-thin legs and hunger-bloated stomachs, I could not imagine. Surely there is no more wretched sight than the human body, unloved and uncared for. Nor could I see the necessity for the complete undressing. But it was one of these mornings, while we were waiting, shivering in the corridor, that yet another page in the Bible leapt into life for me. He hung naked on the cross. I had not known. I had not thought. The paintings, the carved crucifixes, showed at least a scrap of cloth. But this, I suddenly knew, was the respect and reverence of the artist. But oh, at the time itself, on that other Friday morning, there had been no reverence, no more than I saw in the faces around us now. I leaned toward Betsy ahead of me in line. Her shoulder blades stood out sharp and thin beneath her blue mottled skin. Betsy, they took his clothes too. Ahead of me, I heard a little gasp. Oh, Corey, and I never thanked him. It was the enduring love of Jesus that allowed these two women to endure horrific circumstances and to do so while still loving their captors and the women that they were imprisoned with. The love of Jesus enables us to love this way. It's only by his love that we can love others this way. And what we see in 1 Corinthians 13 is absolutely a call for us to love others. It shows us what Christian love looks like. But even more than that, what we see in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 7, is a description of what Jesus' love is like. He loves us this way. More than anything else, what I want you to leave with today is a deep conviction of the abiding, never-ending, perfect love of Jesus for you. Whether you have been walking with Jesus for a long time or maybe today for the first time, you're saying yes to his love, yes to what he accomplished on the cross, yes to allowing him to be Lord of your life. Wherever you're at this morning, we're going to finish today in worship and as we worship, would you just ask the Lord to reveal to you his love? Would you just take a moment to be at peace and rest in the love of Jesus so that when we walk out of this door, when we go back out into the rest of our lives, we overflow with the love of Jesus. And because it overflows, it touches everybody around us. His love is so good. His love for you is so complete. So let's worship together and just abide in that love right now.